And welcome once again to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, a doubleheader, two interviews with artists who like to mix up genres, play with identity, tweak cultural sensibilities, and remind us that the past really isn't past. In the first half of the show, I'll talk to Matt Johnson. We'll discuss the complexities of complexion and racial identity in his own life and his graphic novel, Incognito. And in the second half, musician Daniel Kahn brings the punk to traditional Yiddish song. That's all on the 7th Avenue Project just ahead. And support for the 7th Avenue Project is from the Capitola Book Cafe. Capitola Book Cafe is a full-service bookshop and espresso bar specializing in author events. Open late next to the 41st Avenue Playhouse in Capitola. Okay, on to part one of today's show, a conversation with Matt Johnson. He's the author of several novels, including Drop and Hunting in Harlem, and a nonfiction work, The Great Negro Plot. We discussed his graphic novel called Incognito, and we'll find out what he means by that right about now. Tell me about this term, Incognito. Um, how did you even become familiar with this term, and, and what's it mean to you? Well, I mean, I thought I made it up. I, I didn't. But I made it up as far as I knew. When I was a kid, I used to play with my cousin, uh, who was also uh, biracial. And we used to fantasize that the thing that made us kind of different from a lot of people around us is that, that we were of an ethnicity that we didn't look like we were a member of. Both, both of us looked pretty white, um, and we were also African-American. So we would fantasize that this thing that, like, helped get me beat up on the way home from school <laughs> would be an actual asset. <laughs> and that you know we would go uncover and like you know during the during the underground railroad and you know all these kind of fantasies of of this thing being um a good thing and it was funny i was uh, teaching at the kalu uh writers workshop and with the year i was teaching it was uh myself a few other writers, one of them was Natasha Trethewey, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet. Um, she decided that that was going to be my nickname for the, for the, the, the two weeks we were there, Incognito. And I just started thinking in the back of my head, like, it would be funny to write a story about that. And I was thinking of it as a joke. So it went from me thinking, having this fantasy of, like, the world's worst writer writing these horrible mystery novels about Incognito <laughs> to actually being something that was like, oh, actually, this could be. Um, more serious, and I started thinking about the life of Walter White, who, who um, was um, one of the leaders of the NAACP, and 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 the work he went uh, did on going undercover, um, uh, posing as a white man to investigate lynchings, and and it just kind of grew from there. Uh, and, and I want to get to that story, the, the 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 story in the graphic novel, but a little bit more about you. Um, you write in the uh, sort of author's note at the front of Incognito that that you grew up a black boy who looked white. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm biracial, um, but I also come from a long line of, of, of kind of um, Midwestern Creoles, you know, people who uh, were African Americans of, of mixed, uh, mixed uh, genetic heritage, uh, European and white, and, and some Native American too. And um, so, it, it, for me, um, growing up, I had, you know, I was part of the African American community. I grew up in a predominantly African American neighborhood. Um, and I, I grew up uh, mostly with my mother. Well, my father was nearby, but they weren't um, married um, after I was five. So, you know, I, I identified culturally I, I was African-American. 
um, and you know I came out of that experience, but I did looked very white. I, I looked more um, European when I was a child, actually, than I did as an adult. I still do, um, but when I was a kid, it was like I had like almost strawberry blonde hair, and, and when I was very young, I had gray eyes, and they, they ended up getting turning brown. But um, you know, it was the height of the Black Power movement, and so I was walking like through through my neighborhood with the dashiki on, like everybody else, except you know, uh, I I looked very European. Um, you know, and and many African Americans, uh, probably a majority of African Americans. Um, have a mixed ancestry of, of, of have European ancestry and Native American ancestry. Um, so there's a there is sort of a place within the African American community for this type of narrative for somebody of of, uh, of heavily mixed descent, um, even to the point of looking uh, white. But did but, you uh, have to constantly prove yourself? Um, you know. Well, I think I mean everybody. You know, if if you're short, you have to constantly prove yourself. I mean, it's <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it it, it wasn't. There's there's a stereotype of the trash and mulatto where you just don't fit into both worlds and you're in constant state of agony. It, it, it wasn't like that, but uh-huh. it was, um, you know, the the this this quite this kind of questions of identity ca- came to me early. Like you look at a lot of times when you look at writers and, and other creative people, um, they just didn't really fit in. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's why you have a disproportionate writers who are gay. You have a disproportionate of writers who, um, you know, have for whatever reason didn't quite fit into their surroundings. And and because of that, it makes you, I think, challenge your identity earlier, and challenge issues of identity and issues of, of reality. So, um, and then, you know, now looking back, um, for me, having a way that I didn't quite fit into everybody else, uh, with everybody else, like, was a good thing because it kept me from being, you know, a provincial idiot, basically. <laughs> you know, it kept me from from buying into a lot of accepted notions and and, and maybe challenge things earlier. So, you know, I, it, it ended up for me. It actually was a benefit. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But. But for you know, not not the reasons that I was going undercover in places, <laughs> but just in the sense that made me challenge um, more questions about you know the legitimacy of the ideas about race. Interesting. I can imagine a couple of outcomes of of looking white but being black. One would be trying to prove that you're as black or even blacker than than your darker skinned friends, right. and almost becoming dogmatically racialist you know yeah, what I mean? and, I, and I, I went through a period like that and and you know um they, my cousin used to call me malcolm z mine you know <laughs> but um you know, I, and i think we all go through patterns of like trying to assert identity and that and that can that can be a pattern um that people do and i think to some degree i think things have changed um in a good way uh, a lot since um when i was when i was growing up there really wasn't um a place for a biracial identity there mm-hmm. it was just you were either black or you're white and mm-hmm. especially where i grew up in philadelphia um and in an area where there was a lot of biracial um uh, children but there was still this feeling of this kind of racial cold war um and there wasn't really a space for being um for being biracial or being something other than one or the other and if you said you were it was like you were just being elitist or or you were just you know being white supremacist by you know rejecting blackness and i think that ch- that changed a lot it changed a lot in the 90s that um, and you know my my own ideas about my own identity have changed a lot. And I, I think of myself, I still think of myself as African American as part of the African American community, but I also think of myself as biracial. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and and I and I I really try and celebrate all aspects of of, of my heritage now. But it, you know, it was it, it wasn't the worst thing in the world. It just was it was just a little different. You know, and luckily it gave me great things like I can write a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you write your own uh, Wikipedia profile? Uh, no, 
Okay. I've read it, but I didn't write it. Well, well, there's this weird line. At least it struck me as kind of interesting and strange line in it, and I wanted to ask you about it. It says, ethnically, Matt Johnson is considered a mulatto octoroon or biracial African-American. So there's this, like, old term, octoroon, which surprised me. But but I think... <laughs> I, 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 I like it because I think it's funny. I know. You, <laughs> you, you like these old terms. I mean... Oh, um, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think they're they're hilarious. I mean, I love the mulatto, you know? You use um, it. As a term. You use it. And some people consider it insulting. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Some but, people consider a lot of things insulting, <laughs> right? Um, no, I, 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 I like it as a term. I mean, it, to me, it's like to me, it's like the biracial equivalent of queer. Uh huh. You know? Right. Right. But I, uh, to be honest, I like offending people. Uh huh. You know, I don't like. Um, I don't like people who take themselves too seriously. Thus, the and, name of your I, former blog. Right. Right. Well, that was the point. <laughs> you have to say it for our radio audience. Well, the um, I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll pray in in the 1920s uh, in the, uh, the during the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s and 30s. Um, they they sort Hurston used to call the the the, the black literati the niggerati. And um, so when I had a blog, I did a blog on African American lit, and I didn't want the blog to be a. I wanted to, at the time I wanted the blog to be an in group discussion, and I knew, like, if I put that title, it would basically scare everybody else off, <laughs> which it successfully <laughs> did. Um, and I wanted, um, I also wanted the blog not to be this discussion. There's there's a lot of people who are are out with halos trying to put them on top of cows mm -hmm. and i didn't want it to become um a, a, like one of these things where we're just t like um where it's not critical and, and didn't have a sense of humor didn't have a sense of distance so um so yeah and i did that blog for i think it was a it was about a year and a half or maybe two years and um and it was actually really the, the a lot of really great things came out of that and it, and uh, i really enjoyed the experience um but, but yeah i don't do it anymore yeah, in fact, the domain uh, is dead, right? Uh, no, it's not dead. If you want to buy real estate in Tokyo, uh, you can go to that domain <laughs> name. <coughs> because I just stopped paying on the site, and I think it was still getting traffic. And so uh, somebody decided it was a good investment. So. We should say that um, Zora Neale Hurston you know, didn't mean anything insulting when she used that term niggerati. That was an inside joke, and, and you're in the same position. You know. Right. Well, it yeah. was a, yeah. That was the point. It was an yeah. inside joke among among black writers. Yeah. And when I did the website, that's what I wanted it to be. I wanted to have other black, pr primarily black writers and 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 readers to discuss literature. So I yeah, I knew if I put the inside joke in there, it would <laughs> people who didn't understand the joke wouldn't want to come to the site. <laughs> and that's actually kind of what happened. Well, let's let's talk about the graphic novel uh, Incognito that has just come out in paperback. Um, the uh, I don't want to give too much away, but the, the the premise is that like Walter White, who you mentioned earlier, this character who's black but light skinned goes undercover in the South during the era of lynchings. This is in what the 1930s? Uh, yeah, 1920s and 30s. But he goes undercover to uh, to essentially collect information on who's doing the lynchings, who attends the lynchings. So going back to to Walter White, he actually did this. He actually went into the deep South. Uh, and uh, attended uh, uh, lynchings in order to uh, document them. Um, yes, I mean Walter White wrote uh, wrote about uh, doing this in the past, and he did it himself. He investigated several lynchings uh, by by showing up. I mean, he he didn't just have light skin. I mean, he looked like a European. I mean, it, uh -huh. his whole physiognomy was of a white man. So he he would show up and um, in you know the aptly named Walter White, and he would <laughs> um, he would 
pose as a reporter. At this time, uh, the, basically the, the, the lynchings were so commonplace that oftentimes they didn't even make it into the press in the North. And so the, the goal was to record the events, to find out who was participating in the events, and hopefully to embarrass those people, or at least to put it on the public record so that um, later if there could be possibly still be prosecution. And um, so he investigated several lynchings this way. And, and, um, and one time even it was investigating a lynching and, and, and got on the train um, afterwards when things looked like they were about to turn south. And um, the conductor said to him, uh, and I'll paraphrase, for the radio, that they've got this Negro um, who looks white and he's leaving before the fun began because once they got him, they were going to lynch him up. Oh, man. Um, and so he, 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 he just got out of town in time. So, you know, Walter is a really complicated character and, and not a perfect person but but what what he did there was was pretty impressive and and um and i i like reading about him in the past i was just always kind of blown away by him and and you know, this story is not his story but i based it all around that idea now your character um pretends to be a photographer taking memento photos for people who are going to these lynchings like they might go to like a county fair or you know a picnic and uh, are having a good old time and want their photos taken. Did, did people actually do that? Well, yeah. Well, actually, he pretends to be the photographer's assistant. The oh, that's photographers right. yeah. really existed. <laughs> um, if you, there's a book called Without Sanctuary that collects um, there are some of the remaining lynching um, postcards. What would happen would be they would have the lynching, uh, and that would be the main event, and um, sometimes it would be a very celebratory event. And um, as mementos from the lynching, they would take a um, a postcard of the event. Sometimes people would actually pose for the postcards. Um, sometimes instead of uh, the postcards, they actually um, you know chopped up pieces of the person who had been lynched or burned and gave those out as mementos, hair, um, you know, fingers, things like that. And uh, so people would take these postcards and they would save them as um, as this kind of significant thing that they had been there on this historic day. They would send them to their friends in other counties. Um, and, they, you know, the point of this was domestic terrorism. The point of this was not just the act in itself, but creating um, terror that was going to keep African Americans um, in a subservient position in the surrounding area. So um, part of this memento thing was to, was to spread the word about what had been done. So that other uh, uh, other blacks didn't step out of line um, and, and have this sort of larger form of social control. And I want to let listeners know that this is the Seventh Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I'm talking to the writer Matt Johnson about racial identity in his own life and in his graphic novel Incognito, now out in paperback from DC Comics. Um, now, 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 you, I imagine, as a student of Black history, you know, were familiar with this kind of thing before you undertook incognito right yeah uh but what was it like to actually you know when you write about something you get closer to it and in a graphic novel it has to be depicted in pictures you you weren't the illustrator um in fact we should give credit to your illustrator who was right warren police warren the british illustrator did an amazing job so you didn't actually um draw these things but you got really really close to these events by writing about them how did it feel to 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 do that uh, you know, it's it's interesting. Like I, I'm, I was, um, I, I it's it, I think when something is a part of your own history, you don't have um, there's a distance from it, but it's always there. You know, and and I, I talked when I was out with this book, I was talking to Jewish writers who've written about the Holocaust and 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 had a sort of similar um, experience. It's this is something that's in the back of my subconscious. 
um, I, I, when I did the uh, originally went to talk out to talk to people in newspapers and stuff like that when the book first came out, I had um, a lot of interviewers asking me like, "How did you even know this existed? <laughs> um, did this really happen?" Oh, really? Many of them were young, and uh-huh. it's interesting. The nice thing about having all the bloggers out there now is you end up talking to a million blogs, and many of them are right out of school, and they and it's a, it's as a professor it scares me because it's surprising what they don't know. <laughs> God, but. Um, but I think so. It it it's always kind of there, and you, I, it, when you're dealing with it, for me, like the it wasn't a matter of really new information, but it was a matter of how do I deal with this in a way that's respectful, um, how do I deal with this in a way that's not exploitive, and and to do that, I just thought, you know, I have to the, the keep the respect for those people who um, were victims to this forefront in the forefront of my mind, and I also have to add something new. Because otherwise, if you're not adding something new, they should just go check out a history book. Mm-hmm. This is a comic book. Mm-hmm. So um, what I'm trying to do is add empathy for the people who, who suffered under this um, in, onto the page and let people have a new way of connecting. And hopefully they'll connect uh, that way and go and go elsewhere. But I, I was some of the responses I thought were interesting, like I think it was even – it might have been the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, somebody the, – the reviewer was saying, well, uh, Matt Johnson's angry novel. Oh, no. <laughs> Or angry Graffinella. I was I was amazed because I was like, I'm not. I'm. I know I'm not angry. So <laughs> what is that coming from? And I think in part there's an idea that um, if you even deal with the reality of the situation, that therefore, and it's a horrible situation, that it's therefore accusatory and angry. And I don't even think it's accusatory. There, there's there, there, this happened, and and mm. you know. Um, and I also have people react to the racism of the the Southerners, uh, white Southerners, who they're interacting with. I'm like, well, that is kind of the mainstream way of dealing w- with black people at that time. And and you know, we know that because we you know have the news reports of the era. We have the mainstream kind of viewpoints. Um, and you know, this it's all kind of there. So I think more than me having to deal with news things, it's been interesting seeing how other people react to. Um, mm what I always kind of knew was there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, well it, at least, you know, two kind of awful realities confront the person who thinks about this, you know, really thinks about it. One is what happened to the victims, right? Right. But the other is that there were su- supposedly ordinary people, you know, whose grandchildren are around today who were sure. doing this, who were doing this. Right. You know, that in this country... We had a large number of people who thought that was okay and, and, and apparently even enjoyed it. I mean, that to me is like so uh, – I can't get my head around that. I just can't. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just it, – it's sobering because, I mean, they're just people, you know, and they are normal people. So it just tells you what people are capable of, you mm. know. Mm. Now, um, in this story, it's not just the main character who uh, takes on an assumed identity, right? It's right. a lot of characters who are misrepresenting themselves for various purposes, right? Right. And uh, it generally leads to grief. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> it, it's true. I mean, it, it leads in one case to one of the main characters getting lynched. Uh, yeah. And uh, it leads to uh, other murders. Um, this is a story about identity and, and what it does to us, I guess, and, and fixed identities. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, when you look at it, when you're t- as a writer, when you look at a story, you always want to get the larger theme. And for me, here the theme was about identity and about the the kind of um, the the looseness of identity and the fact that we we play roles and and those roles can be switched and oftentimes they can be switched with with great consequence 
um, you know, uh, that a lot of the people here who are playing with identity end up getting hurt by that, you know. Um, but that, that identity isn't a fixed thing. It's, it's, it's something that we, we, to some degree, we don um, and so I wanted to explore that with the main character, and I wanted to have that. You know, when I'm writing, what I like to do is have, um, you know, what's in the macrocosm also be present in the microcosm, and 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 kind of. So what I'm trying to do is explore a theme, and not just tell an immediate story, but also explore a theme. And so every time something comes in, I'm trying to have it speak to the larger theme. And I do that in part for the art, but hopefully so that by the end of the book, I understand something <laughs> that I don't understand going in, you know, um, and that it, and then all this, this larger kind of exploration leads to something. So today um, in your life, um, you told us you look you look whiter as a kid than you do now. But how, how do do you have a sense of how people are categorizing you if they are uh, when you meet them? You know what? I, I really don't know. Uh-huh. Um, I, uh, I, I guess um We'd have to give people like a questionnaire. I, I, I basically, I'm ethnically, I'm, I'm ambiguous. Uh-huh. So you know what, and I, I, I'm part of a great, uh, a great ambiguous masses. So, like, I don't, um, you know, to be honest, I don't think about it that way anymore. Uh-huh. I think what happens is, um, or what's happened for me at least, uh, you know, you get to the point where you, you, you kind of know more about who you are. Yeah. And and you um, and you start to get more centered, and you you know I accept some people are going to see me as one way, some people are going to see me as another way. Um, luckily, I live in a society today where um, these issues aren't as pressing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like, you know, you think, read things like Richard Wright's Black Boy, and, and you know he, he has these anxiety attacks in an elevator, whether or not he should lift his hat off to tip um, at the white lady, if that's or it'd be disrespectful to to it. And either way, he could end up you know, lynched mm-hmm. if he makes the wrong decision. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, I don't have to worry about those things in the same way. So, you know, I'm very fortunate. I tell you what, I'm getting older. So they see the white hair. Nobody cares either way. <laughs> just an old man. Nobody's scared of an old man. You know, I'm not 40 yet, but still, I got the white hair going on. But so, you know, I, I think I think about it a lot less. Well, you write in, and again, in this author's note at the beginning of Incognito about your own kids, and you say, the birth of my twins in 2005, one of whom is brown-skinned with black Afro hair, and the other with the palest of pink skins and more European curly hair, brought the rest of the story to me. So so I bet you think about it with regard to your kids, what it's going to be like for them, huh? Oh, sure, and I'm glad, um, I'm really glad they're growing up in today's world. Uh, you know, what, part of this, too, uh, I think when, uh, as I said before, when I was a kid, there really wasn't room for a multiracial identity. And, you know, we're in the post, post-biracial movement era, and we're, in, we're going to be in the post-Obama era. Mm-hmm. And people's ideas, you can have a black person now who's, who's lighter, who said, this is my mother, and it's white, and no one will blink. Right. Because we know that those people exist now, mm-hmm. you know. So, and I think, you know, we had the Cosby show where people were, <laughs> kids were all different colors. So it exists more. But I think, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be interested in seeing how they grow up into the world. Luckily, I live in I live in Houston, Texas, and it was just a loosely part of the Gulf Coast. And uh, there's a lot of Creole people down here who um, are uh, descendants of of, of uh, Europeans, the French predominantly, and Native Americans and Africans. And so you see people looking all different uh, colors within that community. So um, so we're just going to hide out here. <laughs> we'll be fine. Has the uh, uh Relocation of New Orleanians after Katrina changed Houston. Um, I don't know because I got here afterwards. Uh huh. 
But I do know that there's always been this conversation between Houston and New Orleans uh-huh. because Houston has basically been the closest big city. And um, one of your most recent books has Katrina as a subject or a setting? Yeah, and actually the characters start in Houston and they decide to um, to uh, go into uh, New Orleans after uh, after the levees break because they have the brilliant idea they're going to take scuba equipment and rob a bank. <laughs> and, of course, it works out well. <laughs> But, but you're I, talking about a, a, a novel, not a graphic novel. Yeah? This is actually a graphic novel. Oh, it's a yeah. graphic novel. Okay. But uh, yeah, and that and, and that's pretty much all I can say on that. The literary fiction, like they beg anyone to hear like, anything about a book, you know. But in like the comic book world, they like guard stuff. And there's an announcement, and you can't hear anything about it. And I can't talk about this project yet. It's really interesting. Now, now tell me about your entry into the world of graphic novels. I mean, you started out as a guy. I mean, as a writer writing actual non-graphic novels no comics, right? Right. Was it yeah. was there any ambivalence about going into, you know, sort of the second class world of comics and graphic novels or there wasn't any ambivalence. There was fear though. <laughs> there was fear. I mean, you don't want to build up your reputation as a premier ballerina and then go strip. You know, I mean, cuz once you once you dance on the pole, it doesn't matter how many but how many Swan Lakes you performed, you're still a stripper, you know? So yeah, I was I was apprehensive about it. But, like, you know, I grew up reading comic books. The first thing I ever read w- on my own, uh, with my own free will, was uh, was a Hulk comic book. And, you know, I, I read comic books really uh, since I was a kid and as an adult when I could afford it. And I thought it would be really neat to apply the type of work I do um, that we're dealing with the issues that I deal with, dealing with the way I deal with them, to to a, a graphic medium, and you know what? It, it like was the best thing I could have ever done. When you were a kid reading those comics, uh, were there any black characters at all? You, that's a really good question. Nobody's asked me that actually. You know, I collect. Um, <laughs> this is really embarrassing. I collect black action figures. Uh huh. Like of, like superheroes. Uh huh. So so who would that include nowadays? Um, it includes a lot, like more than I can actually afford now. <laughs> but it used to be, you have a collection about that, you had to buy like one action figure every two years. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. like now there's a lot more. Because uh-huh. when I was a kid, there weren't um, black uh, heroes. There, there were a couple, but like there, it wasn't the mainstream. And those few that they had, like Black Panther and... Um, exactly, he was the first, wasn't he? Um, yeah, he was the first black real superhero. Yeah, a Marvel um, comic character. A comic character. Yeah. Um, and... The it was and interesting enough was Black Panther the comic book actually came out before the Black Panther Party was formed. Oh really? Um, but oh. yeah, but they both probably were inspired by the the SNCC's um, uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee had a Black Panther as a symbol. That's right. Um, but but uh, yeah, but it was interesting later. It was, made me think like, what is a black character? Who we have a a black character who's supposed to be from Africa and this romanticized version of Africa that seems like it would be created by a black person, but it's created by a white writer, Stan Lee, and a, and a white artist, Jack Kirby. So, um, so even the question of what a black character is kind of is is still something that's interesting. But, but yeah, I those books that have black characters, they were very few, and um, and I collected them, and they were important um, to me. But and and so now there's there's so much it's become so much more present now i'm looking for like there's like three mulattos and and one of them has an action figure so i have her actually but you know but still like it it is i think um to me at the time superheroes were the uh, the idealized version of america this uh, kind of this childhood subconscious what america was right 
So when you had all um, you had all white Americans, you were saying this is what America is. Mm-hmm. And so you know they've they've made a really concerted effort in the last couple of years to have Latino characters, to have Asian American characters, or a character at this point having gay characters start to 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 be present. And and I think that's that's really good. But it also has to do with the fact that as Americans we think of ourselves differently now. Mm-hmm. So if we see um, seven white guys, we don't think there's seven men. We think those are seven white guys. Mm. So we've kind of gotten mm. to the point where we mm. where we've we've given. Um, uh, kind of white Americans and ethnicity, mm-hmm. um, and I think that forces us to to, to integrate it. Mm-hmm. it um, I haven't followed comics in a very long time. I mean, certainly not superhero type comics aimed at, at younger readers. Um, is there a gay superhero at this point in a mainstream comic? Um, yeah, the Marvel. Um, I think it, there's at least one. There was one that uh, the character that they basically outed later. Uh, this character North Star used to be in a thing called Alpha Flight. I used to read, um, and. I, I'm pretty sure there's other characters they've added since. Uh, in DC Comics, they um, they kind of brought in this modern version of Batwoman, um, and uh, the Batwoman character um, was uh, was also a lesbian. Uh, so they they have made efforts to try and and and, and get more diversity. And really, it's not it's, at this point. It's not even a question of diversity. It's a question of creating a world on the page that looks like the world we actually inhabit. Uh, so, Matt, just to finish up here, then um, you you mentioned um, a graphic novel, the one about uh, um, about the people uh, who go from Houston to uh, to post Katrina New Orleans in order to uh, pull off a bank heist. Um, which reminds me in a strange way of Sexy Beast, um, the movie, because there's an oh, un- yeah, that's right. underwater uh, bank heist in that one. Yeah, so uh, if you like Sexy Beast, come by. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got, um, what, what other projects you've got going now? Uh, I've, I've got um, a, an, a, another graphic novel coming out doesn't, uh, uh, with an unreleased title that'll be out next fall, uh-huh. and hopefully another novel uh, out next fall, too. Wow. Well, I look forward to seeing those. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your time. All right, man. And Matt Johnson teaches in the creative writing, writing program at the University of Houston. His graphic novel, Incognito, is part of DC Comics' Vertigo series. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and we'll be right back. And you're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. Support for the 7th Avenue Project is from High Ground Organics and Marikita Farm, who deliver weekly boxes of fresh local vegetables and fruits to pick up spots throughout the Monterey Bay area and South Bay. More information at twosmallfarms.com. That's two as in the number two. Or call 831-786-0625. Okay, on to part two of our show, Yiddish Kicks Tuchus, at least in the singing of Dan Kahn. Originally from the Detroit area, Dan came out of the University of Michigan with a background in theater and writing. He was always interested in American and European roots music, along with punk and contemporary genres. Then he moved to Berlin in 2005 and delved deeper into pre-World War II 
European culture, and particularly Yiddishkeit, the traditions of Yiddish-speaking European Jews. Dan started up a band, The Painted Bird, named after Jerzy Kaczynski's Holocaust novel, and they began playing a brand of music he sometimes calls Punk Klezmer Cabaret, or Verfremstung Klezmer, which Dan will translate for us later, or at least he'll try. He and I listed, listened to the Painted Bird's latest album, and Dan described some of the songs, like this one. It's called Yosel Bear Patriot. It's a classic of the Yiddish folk song repertoire about this Yiddish shoemaker, his assistant. He hates his job. He's got to lick boot soles with his tongue all day. So he thinks he'll get a better deal in the Tsar's army. So he joins up so he can get a uniform and a sword and a rifle and march around and flash his shiny sword and all the girls come around. It's the, the basic con that the military is still working on. <laughs> It's an old Itzik Monger song, poem. In Yiddish, there's no difference between a song and a poem. They have the same words, mm -hmm. a lead. I used to work in a factory till the army drafted me. I think first from a recording that I heard Michael Alpert singing it and Jeff Warshower was probably the first one to tell me that I should think about singing it. And that's Vanya Zhuk on there from St. Petersburg taking that smoking Eddie Van Halen. I was going to ask about the guitar solo, yeah. Did you do the translation yourself then into English? From yeah. Yiddish? Yeah, I do all the translations. I mean, that was sort of my first entree into Yiddish was I wanted to, as a songwriter, take these old songs and do... Uh, I'm still looking for a word. It's not really a translation. I, I thought I could call it a tradaptation, a translation adaptation. <laughs> I tradapted it into English. So, for instance, the line... Um, I used to work in a factory till the army drafted me. Now I work for Army Brass. Factory can kiss my ass. Is yeah. that a little bit of poetic license? Absolutely, it's poetic. I mean, the original is untranslatable, but the original is... I was a, I was a, a shoemaker's assistant. I licked the boot soles with my tongue. I, you know, I'm missing that beautiful, disgusting imagery. It's, it's a little bit weak. What do you want to hear next? Uh, how about uh, Borscht Revisited? Ah, oh, Borscht Revisited. Well, that's Vanya splitting the song with me, so there we go. Okay. That's great. Yeah. He's singing the Russian? He's singing the Russian. And you're singing? I'm singing the English, and, and we both do a little bit of Yiddish. This Borscht is making love inside my belly. Yes, never have I tasted such a stew. Something starts a quelling because there is something about you. I think of you and something starts a swelling because there is something about you. I'm in Yabashom to the Vichel and Akaramila. 
it's a folk song. Uh, and like good folk songs, it's about unrequited love and money and food. This is a, another one that we uh, borrowed slash stole from our Archaver and, and friend, Michael Alpert. But you did a, a retranslation, a uh, tradaptation. My, my, it's pretty much a very, very loose translation of his very, very loose Russian translation of, of, of this old Yiddish song. got one at least one great line in it which is um perhaps you have a problem with my people you didn't realize i was a jew well a hoopah can go underneath a steeple because there is something about you exactly referring to the, the, yeah, the traditional that, jewish wedding canopy yeah yeah well this is not in the original song at all you won't I didn't find think so. you won't find yiddish you won't find any like any any uh yiddish folk songs that are praising intermarriage but the original verse is uh gates in yichis like maybe there's the pro like what's the problem here like why can't we get married maybe the problem is my my yichis my background you know like He's really saying, it's like, my, my grandfather was a rabbi, you know, he was really important. Um, so let's go, ha let's go get married because I'm already getting old and gray. Well, I'm not old and gray. My grandfather wasn't a rabbi. That wouldn't really be much of a selling point trying to get married today. <laughs> and, you know, I, I figured, so if it's the problem, if the problem is my yichis, then the problem is probably that, that I'm Jewish and you're not. So let's just... Come on, let's get over it. Let's let's put that chuppah in the church. Why not? You know, it's it's about time somebody sang a Yiddish song about intermarriage. And, exactly. And yeah, I mean, it, I, I think the image captures an awful lot. The chuppah intact underneath the steeple. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Tell me what you call your style when people ask you. Well, in Germany, we call it Verfremdungsklezmer. Verfremdung means estrangement or alienation, literally. You know, they call it, in, in Brecht's theater, it was the Verfremdungseffekt, the, the, the distancing effect. Um, and klezmer is klezmer music, Eastern right. European folk, you know, Yiddish. Music, so it, it has to do with um, maybe what we're trying to do is alienate people to the point where they're willing to see uh, klezmer music new. Well, let's, uh, let's hear another song, and this one is um, Nakam, or Six Ooh. Million Germans. Ooh, yeah. you're playing our red-hot poker. But it's a true story, totally true. Uh, you can read about it in several books. Not, not, a, not a comfortable history, but... Summar summarize the story for me. It's a story about a group of uh, Jewish partisans who, um, in 1945, found their whole culture and their whole world destroyed... 
And, and this is a, a paraphrase of how one of these partisans described it. He said that we saw ourselves as the agents of fate. They wanted to accomplish themselves what God, were there a God, would want in terms of justice, which in the state that they were in after, right after World War II, that meant getting revenge. They gave themselves a Hebrew name. And with this word they did proclaim That vengeance is what God would will Were there a God And so they'd kill Six million Germans You might say it was insane Six million Germans And it was misdirected pain But it raises some important questions About the effectiveness or ineffectiveness Of vengeance And uh, the question of justice if the scales could ever be brought back to balance. For every Jew the Nazis gassed For every racist law they passed For every wrong that wasn't right For all the dead Nakam would fight But this was a plot by this organization to return to Germany and, and poison water supplies. Just civilian water supplies. It's all in the song. Just listen to the song. They chose to poison water And uh, they want their name was Nakam or Nakuma in Yiddish, revenge. It's a it's a bloody story. They wanted to kill a lot of people. But the Haganah did not agree to join in his conspiracy. Six million Germans. You might say it wasn't right. Six million Germans. That an eye for an eye leaves all without sight. Six million Germans. They didn't want to make a man. Well, you focus on Abba Kovner, who was one of the members. He was, he was one of the main leaders. I mean, Abba Kovner, in some ways I feel I've done him a disservice by focusing on this short chapter in his life. He was a heroic partisan fighting against the Nazis. He was a great leader. He saved a lot of lives. Yeah, uh, then he went on to be um, a celebrated poet and cultural figure and uh, hero in, in, in Israel. Upon a British naval ship But to his plans the Brits were tipped They took him into custody And the poison fell into the sea And Kovner spent a year in jail you live in Berlin. You've been living there for several years now? Uh, almost four years. Yeah. Four years. What is it like to perform this music on the soil, say, let's say, of Germany, of Germany. or Poland and other mm -hmm. places where you perform? Well, it's very complicated and it's not always easy. And um, yet it's, it can also be incredibly rewarding and, and very comfortable. For me, I like to perform this music and I like to perform it there because... I want to take part in, in, in a kind of dialogue about that history. It's, it's, a, it's a dialogue that has been going on for 75 years in German society and in Jewish society. And um, largely those two conversations have been going on independent of one another. So Nakam was all disbanded 
On Palestina's shores they landed And Abakovner and his crew Became like many other Jews They put aside their rage and hate And they worked to build a Jewish state With Jewish towns and Jewish farms And Jewish guns and nuclear arms shelf be taken out later on someone else well careful how you read this tale lest your own prejudice prevail for look around the world today can vengeance put upon a shelf be taken out later on someone else well careful how you read this tale lest your own prejudice prevail yeah i think that um there's a tendency in, in contemporary political discourse on both sides of the uh, the issue in the near east the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Yeah, to, to reduce what is an extremely complex political situation to a kind of cheap narrative of corruption and redemption, etc. I don't want to reduce that situation there. I don't think that, by no means, is the, is the experience of Jews in Europe unrelated to uh, the, the history that then transpired in Israel. But I don't want to reduce the situation there to some sort of a trite cliche. Uh, so I, I raise the point, I raise the question because both sides throw this history into the, into the debate. But I, at the same time, I want to uh, resist any easy answers. And I don't think that there are any easy answers. So yeah, it's my way of bringing something up and really not... <laughs> Opening up the patient, but not knowing what to do once you've got the incision. Sure. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people, um, a lot of people, particularly in this country, have what I like to think of as a uh, don't ask, don't ask policy when it comes to Israel. Was now you have a lot of songs, uh, or several songs, on your most recent album um, from the 1930s from, from Europe that are good, solid, yeah, worker, songs. proletarian sure. songs. Well, there uh, some of them are from the 30s, some of them are earlier. Yeah. But yeah, of course I sing them because they make sense to me now. I got no gripe with them. I mean, the Russian czar was... He was a tyrant, and, and I guess I'm opposed to them, them canonizing him in Russia today, but I'm more interested in the, the current czars, which uh, only some of them are in Russia. The villainous vampires, the masters and tyrants, they suck from the worker the last drop of blood, and then you will know just what they call exploitation to search for a better life for you. What's your feeling about the era that your music evokes? I mean, it does have elements that we would identify as modern punk stuff, but there's a lot of first half of the 20th century Europe, you know, in your yeah. sound. Well, that's where, the, that's where this music developed. I like that old music. You know, I, I was into 
you know, I was into that era of music and American music too. I love early jazz. I love bluegrass and, and old time music and Woody Guthrie and Joe Hill and, and Hank Williams. I love those guys. I mean, I love all kinds of music, you know. But um, I guess it's probably the instruments that we play. I play an accordion and I play a ukulele and we have a clarinet, we have trombone. Well, clearly it's more than just liking the sound because, you know, to read your liner notes um, is to, to see that you're interested in the history, you're interested in the, the, the culture of that period. Uh, I, I, I bet you know something about the literature of that period. Yeah, I've, I've been reading some... Yiddish literature, yeah. but also, you know... I, Not just Yiddish, though, I imagine. No, I've know. been reading a lot of Henry Miller, too. You know? mm -hmm. He settled down around here, but he spent a lot of time over there also in that time. Um, I think that a lot of people have been telling themselves and each other that we live in post-history, that somehow the last 20 years have been some sort of a post-historical, post-ideological um, wind-down... And that what is happening now is not part of any kind of a progress, a progressive process, and that there is no more ideology. And I, I really disagree with this. And so I think that by looking back to the modern age, by jumping over postmodernism, by looking back to the, the modernist age of culture, I, maybe we can find a way out of this uh, soupy brutal mess that we're in because the the fact is that history is over is only over for those people who heard that idea and everybody else has gone on making history like nothing happened and and uh you know people say that that unions are outmoded well unions are outmoded for everybody except everybody who needs a union you know that uh, revolution is outmoded well Revolution is outmoded for everybody who's afraid of a revolution. You know, that, that there's a lot we can learn. If you want to understand what's happening today, you got to go back. In this economy, you know, I just translated this song. It was written in 70, 80, 80 years ago in Poland. And it's called the Arbitlos March. And it's completely contemporary. You could be writing it about people who are living in a tent city outside of Fresno right now. A lot of the, the, the music on your latest uh, album, Partisans and Parasites, is from the 30s. So it is from the Depression. Some of it is, and some of it's from earlier. We have a song from 1912 that was written, it used to be called The, the Song of the Titanic. It's pretty much an old Yiddish song, changed three or four words, and then we do it again in English with a, with a bit of a New Orleans groove. Amerikaner <laughs> Und viele Menschen sind in der Trunken geboren. Euch stellt euch vor, liebe Menschen, dem Churben, wie groß. We uh, changed about four or five words, and it became a song about New Orleans. Where it says, have you heard what happened on the sea? We said, have you heard what happened in New Orleans? Where it says that an American ship has overturned. We said that it's an American city. We put in a line about Bourbon Street and we uh, took out the, a reference to uh, an ignorant and uh, wrathful God and we simply said president instead of God. What's it feel like to sing in Yiddish? I mean, does it have a special feeling when you're, when you're singing in Yiddish? Yeah, it feels good. It feels really good. I mean, to be honest, I think it sounds totally badass. I think it's a great language. 
It's interesting to me to sing a language that most people don't speak or that few people speak um, and then to give them the translation but just the sound of it is a wonderful sound It's got a lot of baggage with it a lot of associations different audiences have different associations or expectations from Yiddish but I think that when you take it seriously as a language then very quickly it'll assert its its wisdom and its seriousness. Well, what's the status of Yiddish in the world right now? It's not a, a dead language. Um, you joke on stage sometimes that people say it's a dead language, but... Uh, it's been accused of being dead. Yeah. It's going to outlive all of us. <laughs> I think uh, the answer I like giving these days is that it's somewhat of a lonely language. You know, there's all these great songs and great stories and also great people out there who speak Yiddish. And they have a lot to tell us in Yiddish uh, if we only listen. Dan Kahn of Daniel Kahn and the Painted Bird. We heard songs there from their latest album, Partisans and Parasites. And we're going to close with one more. It's the second half of that Katrina suite. Dan Kahn used to live in New Orleans, and he heard a lot of jazz funerals. He's adapted that sound in this Requiem for the City. It's called The Destruction of New Orleans. Sit and see. 
Dan Kahn and the Painted Bird. And by the way, the Painted Bird includes Michael Tuttle, Michael Weinegrad, Hampus Mellon, and Vanya Zook. Well, that is it for the 7th Avenue Project for this Sunday. I'll be back next Sunday. I'm Robert Polly. Coming up next, Brett Taylor with the Latin Quarter, the Crema de la Crema of Latin Afro-Caribbean music. Stay tuned for that. And this is Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP Santa Cruz and KBDH San Ardo. We're streaming and podcasting at KUSP.org.